Welcome to U.S. Phenomenon, where possibilities are endless. Put down those same old headlines. It's time to expand your mind and question what if. From paranormal activity to UFOs, Bigfoot sightings, and unsolved mysteries, this is U.S. Phenomenon. From the Pacific Northwest in the shadow of the 1962 World's Fair, the Space Needle. I'm your host, Mario Magana. This is U.S. Phenomenon. If you haven't subscribed to our podcast or watched the stream, you can do so by going to our website, onairmario.com, or you can find us on your favorite podcasting platform. Just search U.S. Phenomenon. We'd like to take a moment to welcome our affiliates, KOSW, KGRG, KAPY, and our flagship station, KVI. Tonight, we're going to talk about something that is not always talked about and i think that sometimes it can be mostly uncomfortable to talk about but for those that are believers or non-believers you're going to be on the edge of your seat tonight according to a new gallup poll 58 percent of americans believe god exists down from 68 percent in 2001 i wonder if that was like during I wonder when that poll was taken, if that had anything to do with around the 9-11 stuff, too. Fewer than 60% say they believe in hell, down from 71% two decades ago. Megan Henning, an author of Hell Hath No Fury, can explain the consequences. While modern preachers often use the fear of evangelizing, is there such a thing? Is there, are they trying to get people through the front door? Is this what the, what's really going on? It is my pleasure to welcome to the show, Megan Henning. Welcome. You are a professor. Uh, I mean, you're 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 the top dog on this. You're gonna definitely school us and 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 let us know what's really going on. Why are people not believing in heaven or hell anymore? What's going on? Thank you so much for that introduction, Mario. I'm really glad to be here. Um, I can't tell you exactly why people are thinking that, but I have some educated guesses. How about that? Um, I think that one of the things that is really startling, that Gallup poll does not compare um, the United States to other places in the world, but globally, more people believe in hell in the United States than anywhere else. Um, so that's also something that we want to note, that it's it's gone down in the United States in the last um, little while, but um, we are still leading the globe in um, preaching about hell here in the United States. Um, and that is that belief in hell is definitely tied to, you kind of teased this a little bit in your question, right? Are people doing this to persuade people to come through the door? Um, and in the United States, in, the, in our world today, that is absolutely part of the picture, that the, the belief in hell is tied explicitly in particular um, evangelical church contexts to increasing numbers. And we see this in a phenomenon that is exclusive to the United States, the modern day hell house. Have you ever heard of a hell house, Mario? Uh, only the ones where you go through the haunted house, but never a hell house. Okay. 
So um, I teach, I'm a professor in Ohio, and I don't know if you know this or not, but Ohio is actually the nation's capital in number of haunted houses as well. <laughs> we have more haunted houses in Ohio than anyone else. Um, but, but hell houses are something that are, are we find in the United States, not only in Ohio. Um, Texas is a huge place for hell houses. There's actually some on the East Coast as well. They're usually run by churches or parachurch organizations, and they are put on around Halloween, but they use the fear of hell um, explicitly to scare people into conversion. So the orientation of hell today in modern churches and in these hell houses is to try to convert people to Christianity specifically. And they do so not only through the scare tactics of hell, like showing specific punishments in hell in these graphic scenes, but there's usually a room at the end where there's also a fair amount of social pressure. Um, and this happens in church settings too, where there'll be what we call an altar call, where um, people are kind of told that they need to convert to Christianity now. Um, and in there's a couple of documentaries on Hell Houses, and you see in those. So if you haven't been to one, you can actually have the experience of seeing some of the scenes in these Hell Houses firsthand through some of these documentaries where you see um, people being sort of cloistered in a room and at the end of the Hell House and sort of told that they need to, um, they have like 25 seconds to decide whether they want to convert to Christianity or not. Um, and so they're, they're, they come to these things like you would a haunted house with their friends, and they have all of these people watching them make this decision. Um, and so there's a great deal of social pressure involved as well. And so these are scare tactics that are used to persuade people to convert to Christianity largely. Um, Power again. And I think that perhaps part of why we have seen um, a bit of a decrease in this um, in the last two years um, I think one possibility is that um, the experiences of living through a global pandemic have made us aware of, this is a very individualistic form of religion, right? It's all about the individual person making an individual decision about their personal um, salvation, or at least that's the way it's phrased in these churches. And the experience of living through a global pandemic has made us all realize that we are connected to each other. Right. In right. fundamental ways, we aren't just individuals making individual decisions that um, only affect our eternal fate. We, the decisions that we make every day affect us all. And I think that that's something that we experienced um, dramatically in the last several years. And I think that that makes an, a, a highly individualistic um, religious practice less attractive. Um, and, and that, I think, might contribute to, to part of what we're seeing here. It's interesting you say that because I would have thought the complete opposite with the pandemic and um, getting right or how people look at this. Um, I know that in my situation, being someone who wasn't married anymore, divorced, not knowing what was going to happen during the pandemic, you know, relinking with, you know, my ex-wife and like coming with a truce to like, we got to get to like, okay, this is like something way bigger than us, right? And um, mm -hmm. being able to work together to for the greater cause of our kids or our, you know, our mm -hmm. child um, to be a better blended family. Now, this is like way above the weeds, but I would have thought if a survey mm -hmm. like this, 
that during the pandemic that the in numbers would have increased but because a lot of churches were shut down during the pandemic maybe that also plays into the fact where you know you're not going door to door anymore and you know a lot of churches you know did they did they shut down where there were some churches mm-hmm. uh and i know of one that i attended um that the doors were open i mean yes people were getting covid on on large levels but they continued to press and press and press and press mm-hmm. uh to just to get to people to go, go through the door um did i watch from home sure yeah i de- definitely did now my beliefs versus someone else's belief like someone who may like to me no judgment on anybody's peace at least for me i just know that i just was like well I've never seen Bigfoot, you know, I've never seen a ghost, you know, and, and I always say, I always say that I'm like, I've never seen a ghost. So I, I you know, mm-hmm. I have some faith now. Is there a higher power? I hope so. Because God, that would really suck at the end of the day. Like we leave and all this energy, like right now, even us having this conversation, this energy just vaporizes, just goes with the cosmic dust. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think the question and the the survey data shows that there's a different number of mm-hmm. people that believe in heaven from the number of people that believe in hell. So I think the big question behind the question is, can you believe in something that you cannot see and have heaven without hell? Right? Right. Can you can you have faith in God or a belief system that involves you ha- trusting in something that you cannot see? And also say, maybe not with this hell stuff. Um, And that's a question that really interests me and one that I've tried to address in my own research a little bit. And and when we talk about, and I know there's a ton of like shows out there right now. And I know uh, I can't even think of the one with John John Goodman where they like a lot of tongue in cheek, um, Mm -hmm. making fun of different religions, you know, the, Mm -hmm. you know, the Christianity, the Mormons and all these different TV shows that have been, you know, out there. I don't want to say televangelizing, you know, what, but some of it I've actually laughed at and thought was quite inter- entertaining. And I, I, I'm from the old school. So I'm like, okay, whatever. I laughed at it, moved on. My question to you is back in the day was in early Christianity was hell different and like were they portraying hell as to do you know to get people to come through the front door to i don't know want to call a move mm-hmm. or like a money maker or like get bodies in the seat what, what? this is a really good that's that's a great question mario thank you so the the earliest hell texts that we have in early christianity are not written for non-christians so Um, The way that hell is used in the United States as a tool for conversion is a different, it's the same rhetoric, it's the same violent imagery that's meant to tug at your emotions, but the rhetorical message is different, right? In the United States, we use that rhetoric, or certain Christians use that rhetoric to try to get people to convert, but in antiquity, um, this was rhetoric that was used from a Christian author to a Christian audience that was intended to get Christians to change their ethical behavior while they were on earth. The question is, so in ancient minds, um, the question that we have is, does hell exist? 
And that's a different question. That's a post-enlightenment question. What an ancient audience would say is, who's in hell? Okay. So not just hell exists, but who's in hell? Because they want to know what are the punishments and what are the sins and what do I need to stop doing? Right? Which is not to say that everyone in antiquity thought that hell existed. Um, the, the ancient geographer Strabo, for example, um, talks about myths and he says, we still should teach our children myths even though we all know that they're not true because they have a good ethical message. So for ancient thinkers, something doesn't have to be true for it to be educationally useful. But we think, so, so what I think is that early Christians are using these stories and whether or not hell is a real place is not a question that's on their radar. They're using these stories to get people to take seriously how they're treating each other in this world. And one of the ways that I know that is that the large majority of the sins that are punished in early Christian depictions of hell are the sins that are described in the Sermon on the Mount that center around care for the other. So how you treat your neighbor, um, how you treat the poor, how you treat um, those in prison, uh, how you treat the people that you don't agree with. Um, Are you able to give of yourself when it is simply for the good of the people in your community? Um, And so um, that's really different from the way that we describe and, well, the way that many people in North America drive and use hell. It seems to me, uh, to me, it seems like the sins were simplistic sins. Very, like, to be honest with you, if, if, if this is what we're going with right now, we're all going to hell because... I mean, I don't remember the last time I talked to my neighbor. Hold on it. <laughs> yeah. So that is actually something that I say very frequently as well, is that if there really is a hell, we're all going. Um, because there is not, these these lists also were pretty exhaustive. I'm going to run right? amok right now. <laughs> That's, there, there were, there were so many different sins listed in these different texts that, um, that they, there were, and you you see this in some of the New Testament texts that people are familiar with, right? Uh-huh. Um, you know, the idea that it's not just adultery that's a sin, but that if you even look lustfully on another person, that's not the person that you're right. married to. Like, that's that's a no, right? Um, so, um, so there the the point of these stories was to persuade people to behave in a way that took into consideration all of the people around you and and that took the ethical model of Jesus very, very seriously. So seriously that um, a, a early Christian saw this as a kind of like, this is the highest ethical goal, uh, not as necessarily a description of... It, it- Listening, right. And so listening to you describe these things, um, I had like like a whole list of things that I was running through my head. But I think my biggest thing is a sin for a sin, right? And we're talking about like lusting over somebody versus 
murder, or stealing, those all are the same level of sin. Not one is higher than the other. Okay, so that's a really interesting question. It depends on whose hell you're in, Mario. So um, in the New Testament texts, for example, Jesus just keeps referring to the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth or Gehenna. um, And there's not a distinction made between different places in that place of punishment. Um, But when we get to um, the Apocalypse of Peter, there's that which is a second century Christian text, um, not in the biblical canon, there are different places for different kinds of sins and different punishments associated with those sins. But there's not, and there's not, uh, the, the hierarchy in that hell actually follows pretty closely the um, Roman household codes or the, the Roman standards of social and moral behavior where, um, men are have the highest seniority in the household, and children and enslaved persons have the lowest seniority. Um, and so that that structure of hell in the Apocalypse of Peter kind of mirrors what was the broader social standard of moral behavior um, in Roman society. Then, by the time we get to the um, early fifth century Apocalypse of Paul. Um, which is the text that Dante read right before he writes his Inferno, um, we do have um, a distinction between some places and other places. And and the Apocalypse of Paul actually identifies um, a couple of places as being the worst ones in hell. Um, and the people who are in those spaces are at that point now, and we're talking after Constantine, those are people who deny very specific aspects of early Christian doctrine. So the people who say that the body and that the Eucharist is not the body and blood of Christ or deny the incarnation are in those um, really bad places in hell. But it's not the seven, it's not the levels that you have in Dante. So Apocalypse of Paul starts to really distinguish and, and there are places that are worse than others, but Dante takes what he reads in the Apocalypse of Paul and just really stratifies so that there are actually some sins that are worse than others. And there's like a very clear hierarchy that we can then trace. Um, And some people um, think that American horror story has actually taken Dante and made a very tightly defined uh, structure for modern sin from there as well. Cause when we talk about this and, and you know, I, I I mean, I typically don't bring up, my personal life, but my I was in in a situation where I was engaged, and we were, you know, doing the church thing, and um, and we were having this this discussion, you know, and, and this is going to go way into the weeds, and talking about as for me being someone who is a believer, understanding like, look. What one individual is doing with their personal time is none of my business. But according to the book that I read, that book says, you know, don't judge anybody, you know. And so I'm like, okay, this is what the book says. I'm going to go with it, you know. Mm -hmm. So what someone does, none my business. They Mm -hmm. have to meet whoever their maker may be. If they don't believe in a maker, however this all plays out. But... So, for the, but from what it sounds like to me, I'm going to see them all in hell anyways, because, <laughs> well, 
because I'm, yeah, well, <laughs> it's I say this like tongue in cheek, but God, can you imagine if we were to follow the laws of how simplistic those sins were? How better a world we might actually have? And this is something I'll talk about later because I'm going to bring this up. I want to leave this meat and potato for the second half of the show, but simplicity of those sins comparative and I'm, I'm not saying it was a different world well yes it's much different but I, it, it just seems like it's so complex now but to me it's like the levels of sin have changed where you know i'm like well i haven't talked to my neighbor i have not done anything for the poor other than donate to the church but and you know someone asked me for some money i'm like ah just beat it because Again, now I'm passing judgment on an individual on the circumstances of what I believe might be the case. So um, as we get close to uh, the bottom of the hour, when we come back, I want to ask you, I want to get into the levels again. I want to continue that conversation about the levels of sins. Plus, uh, what does hell look like in like what happens to us? Maybe you can shed some light on that. Uh, what happens to the body if 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 there is such a thing as hell? Um, and where can people find your book? Let's talk about that real quick before we get to the oh, bottom. Absolutely. So um, my book is published with Yale University Press. You can buy it directly from Yale University Press or wherever books are sold. Um, and, um, it is specifically looking at these very questions that you're asking about how do the ancient kind of ideas about sin and the body and, and hell correlate or not correlate to our own ideas today? And how do they maybe inform some of the ideas about the body that we have today, um, in ways that we might not realize. So it's specifically about um, gender and disability and social hierarchy in the ancient world and how those things um, and ancient ancient ideas about criminal justice um, informed early Christian ideas about hell, but also how early Christians amplified those ancient ideas about the body and justice and, and how some of the sediment of those ideas um, has really influenced especially uh western society because of the influence of someone like dante and you have one book out now and you you're working on a second one right is that right no that's my second book sorry hell hath no fury is my second book my first book is called educating early christians through the rhetoric of hell and that's about the way that um the idea of hell borrows on rhetorical models from the ancient world and and greek and roman rhetorical education perfect when we come back Let's let's dissect this a little bit deeper. I know we we need probably three hours plus for this, <laughs> but let's get into a snippet of what hell might look like for for the tangibles here for us on this physical plane. Uh, and I want to talk about a couple things that I'm going to put out there. Was the Bible written to keep humans from running amok? We'll be back. You're listening to U.S. Phenomenon. You're listening to U.S. Phenomenon with your host, Mario Magana.